Morning, church. Good to see so many. Fun to have the kiddos in service with us, to have them lead us in song. It, it should remind us of what took place some 2,000 years ago this morning. Oh, if you're a kiddo and you want to go downstairs, you're welcome to go downstairs at this time. And uh, kids ministry workers are in the foyer. They'd pick you up there, and you could, the kids will be taken downstairs. They'll you meet them after service downstairs. Anybody? No takers. All right. We're all in this together. Did you hear the little kid? We were dying laughing. We could hear from over here at the end of their second song when kids stood, finally, we can go. <laughs> Honesty. You got to love it. Got to love it. In the springtime, about 2,000 years ago this morning, Jesus entered Jerusalem with all the pomp and circumstance due only to royalty. Up to this time, he had cautioned people not to tell who he was or even what he had done for them, in some cases healing them, and then saying, keep it to yourself, keep it quiet. And of course, most people struggle to do that. You can imagine the Lord healing you and, and how that would change your life dramatically and you'd want to tell everybody. He often avoided public scenes. In Jerusalem, he would often stay in Bethany, which just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, it's where Mary and Martha lived. It's their brother Lazarus had been raised from the grave there. That's where he was the morning prior to entering on Palm Sunday morning. Outside, trying to keep a low profile. All that was changing now, though, and everybody was asking the singular question, who is this Jesus as he enters the city? 21 centuries later, it's still important for us to ask and answer, to wrestle with that question ourselves. Wherever we are at in the journey God has us on and his care for us, maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer, you're checking out the claims of Christ, we're so excited you're here, glad you're here. But this is a safe place to ask questions. And the question on our minds this morning is, who is this Jesus? Even if you've been following Christ for several decades, as I have, you want to re-ask and answer that question. You want to do so with the help of Scripture. So on the screen is Matthew 21. You can turn with me there in your copy of the Scripture this morning. Let me read it for us. This is Matthew's account of Palm Sunday. Matthew 21, verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage. Bethphage was just on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. So if you're approaching Jerusalem, he stayed in Bethany. He starts his walk towards Jerusalem, gets to Bethphage, sends a couple disciples ahead to get the donkey. Came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you're going to find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them. Bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Quote, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Close quote. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed after shouted, Hosanna 
to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem was the beginning of the Passover feast in which Jews, Jews <clears throat> would pilgrimage to the city to celebrate, to remember the Passover. That is the Hebrew deliverance, their ancestors' deliverance from Egyptian slavery. This deliverance culminated in the 10th plague uh, in which the angel of death took the lives of every firstborn person in, uh, in Egypt, but spared the life of, of all in Hebrew households whose doorposts were marked with the blood of a, an unblemished lamb. The Israelites had been directed to mark your doors in this way, mark it with the blood of a lamb, and God had told them, I'll pass over you, meaning protect. Picture in your mind uh, a mother bird putting her wings over her little ones wanting to protect them. I'll pass over you and I'll not let the angel of death come near your house. That was the experience of the Hebrews. And they, they gathered annually in the Passover celebration to remember how the blood marked the homes and spared them from death. This is the context for Jesus' entering Jerusalem. And as part of the Passover celebration, pilgrims would go to the temple there in Jerusalem and they would offer sacrifices. This was a part of both remembering the blood that had been shed in the first Passover to protect them from the angel of death, as well as an appeal to God to continue in his work of caring for the Israelites, his work of deliverance and the need for the forgiveness of sin. Estimates are that the population of Jerusalem would swell by hundreds of thousands during the Passover festival, possibly reaching a half a million. Along with thousands of celebrants, this means that Jesus enters Jerusalem as everybody is, is entering for this feast week. He's just one among hundreds of thousands making their way to the city. And when he gets there, he goes straight to the temple. Jews would, at the temple, go there to purchase their sacrificial lamb by which they could celebrate the Passover feast. So you had to have an unblemished lamb. And there was a trade that had grown up around providing lambs that were sufficient for the Passover feast. And so families would enter the city and go to the temple on this first day and purchase their lamb. Jesus didn't go, though, to purchase a lamb. He went to present himself as the lamb, the acceptable sacrifice of God. If you're unfamiliar with the events described in today's passage, some of what's going on may seem odd to you. If you grew up in the church, they may seem odd to you. There's just not much cultural context for us 21 centuries later to, to people shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, right? We just, when people shout in worship here, we get a little unnerved, right? So we don't, we don't have that cultural context, right? Shouting in praise. Neither do, are we familiar with people waving palm branches and what that meant or riding in on a donkey. What's Jesus getting at? So what's going on here? 
Well, first we should understand that the word Hosanna is translated from some Hebrew words that are translated as save us in Psalm 118, verse 25. Different things are going on in the book of Matthew, right? He's recording uh, historic events. Psalm 118 is a, is a song which the Hebrews would sing. Psalms is the songbook of Israel. And so it's a, it's a different genre of literature, so the Hebrew words are going to be translated a, di- a little differently. But basically what they're shouting is, save us, son of David. Save us. It's a recognition that Jesus is God's Messiah, the one sent to deliver Israel, the one who has rightful ownership of the throne of David, a previous king in Israel's history. Save us, son of David. And salvation for them meant deliver us from Roman oppression. Israel was an occupied territory at this time. They're calling on Jesus to deliver them during the Passover feast, much like Moses. They would have had in mind the Mosaic deliverance of Israel thousands of years earlier as as the Egyptians were holding in bondage the Israelites. Fast forward to the first century, the Romans are oppressing the Israelites and Jesus, the, the miracle worker and the, the teacher that confounds the, the Pharisees, he's entering the city and they're yelling, Hosanna, save us, son of David. Deliver us from the political oppression. It's almost like a battle cry. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Rise up, take your rightful place on the throne and lead us to victory. That's what they would have had in their mind. Make no mistake, we celebrate Palm Sunday in the context of worship. We gather, we sing, it's peaceful, springtime, it's beautiful, it's the quintessential cute moment with the kiddos. They had in mind something much different. For them, they would have they would have wanted Christ to march in, take a sword, and triumph over the Romans. Our context is post-crucifixion, post-resurrection. We know that Christ came into the city, presents himself as a sin sacrifice. He serves Israel and all Gentiles by laying down his life. He's victorious over the grave, which is a consequence of sin. And we celebrate that, and rightly so. In their context, they were wanting a deliverer, a political, a military deliverer. It makes me question, what was Jesus thinking in the moment? If we're going to understand this rightly, How do we understand Jesus' actions as he entered? What was he trying to communicate? The best understanding of what Jesus has on his mind is depicted in his mode of transportation. That is, riding on a donkey. This donkey, and interestingly, this is the only time that Jesus is ever described as, as doing anything but walking anywhere. It's the only place in the Gospels where he's being carried. And so he's riding on this donkey. You've got to think he's keenly aware. He's he's trying to drive a stake in the ground. He wants to communicate something here. And sure enough, Matthew recognizes it. 
what's going on. And he quotes from Zechariah chapter 9. It's on the screen here. This prophecy is offered by Zechariah some 500 years before Christ is born. And it doesn't take much to piece this together. Jesus is, is fulfilling prophecy. Rejoice greatly, the prophet Zechariah says. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation he is. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah says the king is coming. Clearly, Jesus means to affirm these words, to present himself as some combination of both king and savior. He's the righteous one, Zechariah says. He has salvation, righteous and having salvation. So what is this parade? Is it a political parade? Is the time finally come and Jesus is going to try and garner votes? Is that what's going on here? Is he riding the donkey into town to crest towards a political position? Is it a military parade? In first century, uh, those under uh, Roman rule would have been keenly aware of Roman processions. The Romans loved parades. Is this a military parade in which he's setting himself up to fight against Rome? I would say this is a prophetic parade. A prophetic parade. It has both spiritual and temporal realities to it. Yes, he is a king, but he's righteous and has salvation. Zechariah notes the king will arrive in Jerusalem on a donkey. Interestingly, this donkey in the ancient world, everybody would have known to ride on a donkey is, is the royal symbol of peace. He comes in peace. He doesn't come to make war. He comes to reign, to rule, to set upon his throne. If Jesus had ridden in on a horse or a horse or in a chariot being pulled by a horse, a much different message would have been communicated. One of coming violence and dominance and confrontation. But he comes in on a donkey. The mode of transportation is meant to communicate he's the king and he comes to establish peace, to reign. In righteousness, he has salvation. So how do we answer the question, who is this? To answer this question, let's be careful to answer the question, uh, not simply from, uh, from our perspective or uh, from prophetic uh, Zechariah's content, but from what we see going on here in, in the passage, and then as Jesus uh, makes his way into the temple, how do we answer the question, who is Jesus? Part of the answer to the question, it comes at the close of uh, verse 11, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So the first thing we could say is the, to the answer to the question, who is this Jesus, is Jesus is the prophet of God. Zechariah had been a prophet of God. Uh, Jesus is uh, the final prophet of God. He's the culmination of prophecy. And by prophet, we mean that Jesus embodies and reveals the truth of God. In the Old Testament, prophets often played a confrontational role as they pointed out people's sin and called them to repentance. 
when Jesus began preaching, his message was repent from your sin. Turn, that means to turn from your sin. And he'd say, because the kingdom of God is near. In other words, repent because judgment is nigh. The king has arrived. Jesus also said of himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I speak the truth, but I am the truth. I'm more than simply someone who tells the truth. I embody the truth. A strange thing to say about yourself. I am the truth. For Jesus to say that, he's saying that when you see me, you see the Father. He said as much, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. It's a claim to deity. He's the perfect image of God's character in every situation, even when speaking and carrying out judgment. In Matthew's account of Palm Sunday, uh, there's a pause between verse 11 and verse 12, and I want to continue on to verse 12. But you should know that they don't flow um, from 11 into 12. There's actually a pause, there's a break. When Jesus uh, gets to the temple uh, after the, the, the entry, we know from other gospel accounts that he goes back out to Bethany. He goes back out to Bethany for the evening. So he arrives in this, at the end of this prophetic parade. It's a little bit anticlimactic. He presents himself as the Lamb of God for all intents and purposes. He surveys what's going on in the temple. We'll learn in a minute he's not happy with what's going on. But then he doesn't act immediately. He goes back out to Bethany for the evening. Monday morning he comes back in. We're piecing this together from other Gospels. And Matthew records that Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And then he says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. This is a prophetic role. This is a prophetic ministry. He's shining the, the light of God on the, on the sin of humanity. He's saying, you're misusing the temple. You're misrepresenting God to the, the people. You're mishandling the, the work of worship here. And so what's he upset about? Well, to, uh, to go to the temple and offer sacrifices, you had to have money. You had to have money to pay the temple tax. The temple tax was a tax, and a fairly small tax, relatively speaking, uh, by which temple operations went forward. And then you also had to have money to purchase um, sacrifices, whatever your family could afford. And there was a tiering of sacrifices based on your socioeconomic status. Uh, if you were uh, less wealthy, then you could buy doves. If you were more wealthy, you might buy a lamb. But whatever you were offering in sacrifice, you had to purchase. The trouble was that when people were coming from all over the area, they were on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would bring coins that were different than what was used in Jerusalem which meant that coin exchange had to take place. There had to be, uh, the temple tax had to be paid in a particular coinage. And because you didn't bring your animals with you, you had to buy these animals, and you may or may not have had the right coinage. Again, you had to exchange coins. The problem was that the coin changers and the animal vendors were charging exorbitant rates. They were getting rich off the worship that was going on there in the temple. They were a den of robbers. They were stealing from the people of God. 
The people of God come there in earnest to, to sacrifice, uh, to repent of their sins, to have their sins atoned for through these sacrifices. And then there's this trade that's grown up around it by which people are profiting and growing rich. This is what Jesus shines a light on. And he overturns their tables and he chases them out of the temple. We always close our services with prayer. And we'll do so today. We'll sing a song and we invite you down to pray. It'd be great if the, if the Holy Spirit is shining a light on your heart and you're more keenly aware of something going on and you could come forward for prayer. That is what honors God, is, is when he shines the light of truth on our hearts, that we, we turn to him and we agree with his prophetic ministry in our lives. We say, you're right, that's what's going on in my life. We confess and, and then we turn from that sin. By the help of the Holy Spirit, we do so. So we'd invite you forward for prayer for that reason. But here's the good news. Jesus doesn't simply have a prophetic ministry. He, Jesus doesn't simply shine a light on our soul and say, aha, sinner. Jesus actually cares for us in our sin. Jesus isn't, the gospel is not, ah, you're sinful, try harder. The gospel is, oh, we're sinful, Christ has cared for us. So in answering the question, who is this Jesus? We could say he's the prophet of God, but he's also the priest of God. You could say he's the high priest of God, which is uh, a role in the, the temple in which one person went into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God annually to minister on behalf of the people and receive the forgiveness of sins for the nation. Jesus as our high priest, invites us into the presence of God. He's cared for us. He doesn't just shine a light on our, the sin in our lives and then say, try harder. No, he's, he's laid his life down for us. He cares for us in our brokenness. He atones for our sin. So he enters uh, the first day of the week during the Passover, uh, to great celebration, he goes to the temple, presents himself as God's choice sacrificial lamb. He returns to the temple the next day. He rebukes those that are taking advantage of uh, the temple sacrifices. He confronts their sinfulness. But look what happens next. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Jesus is the prophet of God confronting us in our sinfulness and Jesus is the priest of God caring for us in our brokenness, our sinfulness. Sin brings death into our lives. It is the cause for disease and destruction and death in the world, sin, individual and collective. And Jesus cares for the broken bodies there in the temple. Most Jewish authorities forbid the lame and the blind and the infirmed from entering the temple, they would have been seen as unclean. But Jesus welcomed the sick with open arms. He turns the temple into a hospital, a place of restoration for the soul and the body. If you want prayer for healing, a couple of folks came prayer for, forward for prayer for healing this morning. If you want prayer for healing, you come forward at the end of the service. The prophet Isaiah, 
and then the apostle Peter both said, by his stripes, that is, by his suffering, are we healed. Jesus means to communicate as he enters the city that yes, he's the prophet of God, but he's also the priest who cares for us in our brokenness. If it's sounding too good to be true, then I like to say you're, you're understanding grace. He points out our sin and he cares for us in our sin. He offers his, his life, his body as a sin sacrifice. That'll happen later this week. We'll celebrate what we call Good Friday, good in its ministry to us as Christ is crucified and then laid in a tomb. He cares for us. So to accept Jesus as Savior and to answer the question, who is this, means to affirm he's the prophet of God. He's right when he says that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father through him, except through him. It's to agree with his, his assessment of humanity that we're sinful, and then to entrust yourself to his priestly care. But there's a third element to who Christ is. Christ is, Jesus is the king over all creation. Prophet, priest, and king. The merchants had been cast out. The lame were being healed. Look what happens next in the temple. When the chief priests, these are the religious leaders of Israel, and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, his healing ministry, and, and the children shouting in the temple courts, save us, son of David, they were indignant. They're angered. They're frustrated by the ministry. Folks, what is our response when we hear the prophetic work of God, the ministry of Christ, that we are sinful and that he has laid down his life for us? Lord willing, our hearts soften and we're moved by grace. Heaven forbid that our hearts are hardened by that message, that we must have a Savior. Heaven forbid we grow indignant to the healing work of God, the promise of restoration for all those who are trusting in Christ. They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you ever read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? The title Son of David, yes, it's a political designation. The crowd was proclaiming Jesus had the right to take the throne of their ancestor David, the king. The crowd's cheering for Jesus to take his position of authority and begin his reign then and there in Jerusalem. But the throne of Christ is not simply a political, temporal reality. It's an eternal, spiritual reality as well. There will come a day when Christ returns and he reigns on earth, without a doubt. That day is ahead of us. We get glimpses of that in this morning's passage. Our call is to submit to him as king, to affirm his message of our sinfulness as, his, as God's prophet to experience his ministry as God's priest, and to submit to him as God's king, the king over all creation. 
How do we do that? Most simply put, we find our place in the prophetic parade. I like to say that Easter is every day. And we know that. If you're following after Christ, the effects of the resurrection of Christ have changed everything. Easter is something we celebrate every day. We'll celebrate it annually next Sunday. But the reality is the impact of Easter is something that is ours every day. Eternity has already started. Eternal life has started for those who are trusting in Christ, which means that Palm Sunday is every day. Every day we should be living out the celebration that the king has come. We should be living out the celebration that the king will return, his second coming, claim his bride. Have you found your place in the prophetic parade? Have you submitted to the king? Have you laid your cloaks, as it were, down in front of him? Have you found the palm branches that you're waving? Have you turned your life over to him? Is the question to be answered. Look what Jesus said about those who follow after him. He said, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Who is looking at your life and saying, wow, Christ is king? Are you letting your light shine? As followers of Christ, we emulate his prophetic, priestly, and kingly ministry. We take our place in declaring him as king, submitting to him, and then making him known. One way that we can find our place in the prophetic parade is to emulate uh, Jesus' baptism. You know, Christ was baptized as an adult, under the water, out of the water, John the, baptized, John the Baptist baptized him. And one of the ways that we find our place in the prophetic parade is to get baptized, to make a public profession of Christ. And baptism is is a kind of living, breathing metaphor. When we go under the water, we're being identified with his death. Just as he was laid in the tomb, in the ground, we place people under the water. And we're, we're saying his death is necessary for the forgiveness of my sins, and I'm accepting his death. And then when we're raised up out of the water, we're saying we're trusting in his resurrection. We're saying it's his resurrection, his overcoming the grave, that secures eternal life and healing for us. We can take our place. This is just one way to take our place in the prophetic parade. And I raise this because it's important that we follow Christ in baptism. Baptism is a part of the Great Commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, teaching them to obey everything, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the, some of the last words of Christ to his followers. Go, teach, and baptize. Let that living, breathing metaphor ring out across the globe, call people to be identified with me, my death, my resurrection. Now, I know in our county, 50% of our county identifies as Catholic. 
And so I know that many in our county were sprinkled as babies. But every baptism in the New Testament is a baptism upon profession of faith. So it's important, I think, that we emulate Christ as best we can and that we follow him in baptism by immersion. That we lend our voices and our bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, that we, we engage our bodies in the prophetic ministry of telling people that we believe Christ was dead, buried, and raised. So I'd encourage you, we're going to baptize people next Sunday. If the Lord moves you to get baptized, love to have you baptized next Sunday. I think there are six currently signed up. Love to have you jump in there and be baptized. Whether it's next Sunday or Sundays in the future, it's just one way to let the world know you recognize Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And you're depending on him not yourself, for salvation. Let me pray for us toward that end. Father, we thank you for the ministry of Christ to us. We're about to sing that it's what he's done that we're depending on and nothing that we've done. I pray, Father, for your goodness to us, your care of us. I pray that we would receive your ministry to us as prophet. We would acknowledge our sinfulness and repent. And then we'd be awash in your grace, knowing that you restore us mind and body, and that we have an eternity ahead of enjoying your full restoration. And that while we wait, we would submit to you wholeheartedly as king we would recognize your authority in every area of our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.